I'm going to try to remember where the black dots are that I'm not supposed to go past. They're somewhere. So if I go past that and you're at home and I look weird, that's why. It's definitely not because I just look weird. We're going to continue on in our sermon series where I'm just taking some time and introducing myself to y'all as uh, a new pastor, telling you stories about my past and my life and my experience. And I remember going to one church, and I was the associate pastor, and it's great having an associate pastor. It's not as great being an associate pastor. Uh, you're the associate pastor, and you're, you're giving an extraneous job title, pastor of this. Or the worst ones is when there is no additional job title, you're just the associate pastor. And your real job title is whatever the senior pastor doesn't feel like doing that day. And, or as duties as assigned, other duties as assigned. And I was the associate at a large church and I had to do all the pastoral care for a season. And I was going to meet these two elderly sisters. They were twins and they lived and grown up during the Depression. And they were so excited to see me. And I wasn't quite sure. This is like 10 years ago. I was in my late 20s. And I wasn't quite sure why they were excited to see me. I mean, they've had a string of associate pastors do pastoral care for much longer than I've been alive. And what was special about me? And so I, I packaged up the little travel communions that I had. And I went over to their house. And I sat down. And, and the two sisters, they were twins and they were living together, were so giddy to have me in their living room. And I, I did communion, and we went through the whole visit, and, and I asked them, I was like, what is it about me that you're so excited about? Because everyone's been telling me on staff that you're really excited to get a chance to meet me, but you've met dozens of other pastors. I'm nothing special. And they said, oh, but, but you lived in Lexington, Kentucky. We're from Lexington, Kentucky. That's our hometown. And I said, oh, Really? And so we started talking about Lexington. They want to know about it. What's it like? What's happening there? And I was like, well, I haven't lived there in like 10 years almost, or seven or eight years almost, you know, since I got out of seminary. I don't know what it's like, but, you know, now, but I can tell you what it was like then. And it was a thriving town, like any major town in America. I mean, what are you looking for? And they, they were just so intrigued. They hadn't been back in decades, and they wanted to hear about their home and what had changed and what had stayed the same. And what really got them was when we started talking about where I had lived. We'd bought a house on the north side, right past a small university. You know, you got the big one, University of Kentucky, which I have a really funny story about that that I'm not allowed to tell. <laughs> and... Then on the north side of downtown, you have this tiny little university, private school, less than a mile from downtown Lexington, the center of downtown being this park by Rupp Arena. Rupp Arena is like a holy site in Lexington because it's where the yeah, University of Kentucky Wildcats play basketball. It didn't help them a lot this year so far, but you know. Um, and so up about a mile from that, there's this little university called Transylvania University. And it's the weirdest thing, because we walked in the main hall, and there's a big bust of Sam Houston. And it's the, for a Texan living abroad, it's the most confusing thing. Like, you look at that, it's like, what's he doing here? Huh. But it's the school he graduated from. It's his alma mater. Strange enough. And so he, he left Transylvania University in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, and came and settled in Texas. I know that feeling. And... 
as he did that, we're, we're going through all these things. I said, oh, I lived a little north of, of what we would call Transy, Transy University. And, and, and they were excited and they kept questioning. And I finally told them the address. I said, we bought this specific house. Are you happy now? Like, can I leave? And they got so excited because it was the house two houses down from where they grew up. They literally had walked by my house, well, back during the Depression. They walked by my house almost every day going to the little city park that was a couple blocks north of there. It's the weirdest thing, the biggest coincidence. And we started talking about that house and, and how special it was to us because that's where we brought our first daughter home. It's where I got my first appointment. It's also, as we moved back to Texas, where my truck was stolen. <laughs> In fact, we'd left it up there. We'd just moved back. I'd gotten the call from the bishop to, to go and be appointed to first Bartlett, which is not too far from here. I mentioned it last week. And one of the decisions we had to make is what do we do with our house? We were actually in the middle of remodeling it when I got the phone call from the district superintendent. We had started with what was a, a small refresh in this house we bought during seminary, and then we found termite damage, and it just kept going and going and going, and we were, had actually torn up the subfloor in our dining room, and I was sitting straddled between the floor joists, looking at the dirt under my house, from inside of my house. And I got the call from the district superintendent that said, could you be there in four weeks? And I said, could we do six? And he said, let me call you back, I'll see. And he called me back, yeah, yeah, we can do six. And so we had to make some decisions. One of the decisions is we were going to leave our little pickup truck we'd bought as a work truck there. And the pickup truck lasted about two weeks after we moved away. And then I caught a lovely call one night from Lexington PD that it was missing. One of my friends who had been watching the house saw it missing, knew I wasn't anywhere in the same time zone as them, and so called it in, which I was thankful for. But it set off this whole emotional roller coaster of what really is justice in this time, in this place. And I brought that up with the ladies as they sat there on this visit, as we talked over the leftovers of communion, as I cleaned up my little set. What was justice in that time? Because if you're from Texas, you're from Texas, one of the hardest things you can go through is to have someone steal your truck. That's why we write country songs about this. You lose your truck and your wife and your dog. If you doubt me, I want you to travel to Lubbock and listen to every other song they play, because it's about one of those three things, or all three of them, it's a really sad song. And so I had one of those three sad West Texas things happen to me. I had my truck stolen. It wasn't a special truck. It's a little S10, five-speed. It was really fun to drive. Because it was up north, it, the bed had started to rust out, but that didn't matter. It was still really fun to drive. And I had to wonder as I sat there, and process the emotions of what justice meant in that situation. And we have in our culture this concept of justice that we've constructed. And if you talk to an insurance person, they use the phrase to be made whole. If your truck is stolen and you have full coverage insurance, they will quote-unquote make you whole by giving you whatever the value of the truck was. It probably wasn't a lot for that old beater, 
But we have this concept of justice in our culture built in that has some sort of aspect of fairness an equivalent exchange that happens. If something bad happens to you, then to make you whole, something good should happen to you in equal amount. And for us in the Western world, this is our concept of justice. Our concept is that bad and good have to zero each other out. And if something bad unexpectedly befalls you, then something good should be given to you that makes up for it. But if that is the kind of justice we approach our sermon series scripture with, then we're going to have a really hard time with Micah as he is telling us, instructing us today that the Lord requires us to do justice. Does that mean we follow everyone around and every time something bad happens to someone, every time someone's car breaks down, every time someone has something that is wrong with them, every time the world does something bad or any time there's some sort of evil that happens that we go and we forcibly make it right? Is that even humanly possible? And then you overlay the complex reality that we are people with many different views and many different ideas of right or wrong. And it becomes almost an impossible task. How do we do justice? And I think the struggle people of faith have with this passage is that we don't really think about what justice is. In the sense of our secular Western concept of justice, yeah, this passage is completely impossible. But if we begin to look at it through the lens of what justice is in the Bible, then it becomes something very achievable. Because if we look at the concept of divine justice within the Old and New Testament, and if you're Catholic, let's, let's throw in the Apocrypha for fun. If you're really confused by that statement, come see me afterwards, I'll explain it to you. But when we look at that definition of justice, we begin to see a very different picture. That justice is, in sense, not about some abstract right or wrong, about zeroing out the equation of fairness, or about developing fairness in our lives or the lives of people who've been wronged or hurt. But instead, we see that justice is, in essence, from God's point of view, about restoring relationships and rebuilding them when they've been torn down. And that's vastly different. That is so different from our concept of justice. We see here in Micah's passage this idea, as we introduced it last week, that the priests and the religious leaders of the nation of Israel are doing all of the quote-unquote right things. They're believing the right things. If you back up to the first part of chapter 6, they are doing the right actions. Even Micah, as the prophet, voices God's concern. What would you do if we went even bigger and better with our offering? Even bigger and better with our burnt offering? What if we poured all of the oil out? Would that be enough? Maybe if we offered our firstborn son. Someone hasn't done that in a very long time. 
And God's response is the passage we started with today. That's not enough. Like we talked about last week, it's about something more. It's about the heart. Not just what you believe, not just what your actions are, but your heart and identity have to be right. To do justice in the world begins with centering our identity, our hearts, on Christ, and then moving forward to repair relationships in creation between one another and between ourselves and God. And we struggle with that because that looks different than our secular concepts of justice. It looks very, very different. It's also what the early church struggled with. This is not a new problem for the church. This is not a new hardship that we're facing. It's not something crazy. But it's something we've struggled with from the beginning. If you page over to James in the New Testament, you see the church immediately struggles with this because it's easier to focus on beliefs or actions alone instead of to focus on the heart of the matter. And so the early church, at the very beginning, struggled with what it meant to do justice. So much so that the letter of James is written, and I think it's a pretty powerful letter. You see in the very beginning, as he says in verse 5, my, bro- my dear brothers and sisters, and I want to break that down because that translation into English kind of obscures the tone in it. As James writes that letter, and he says, dear brothers and sisters, We see that as a a friendly greeting. Like, I'd put that on my Christmas cards if I was the one that did the Christmas cards. You know, I would would put that on a nice letter if I'm I'm writing in the little signature book at some friend's wedding. Actually, that'd be kind of weird in a wedding. But I would put it down in nice, cutesy places. But instead, the author of the letter is using it to grab our attention. It, It might be explained or expressed a little bit better by saying, now get this straight, all of y'all. Listen up really good, because this is important. It's an exclamation, a call to attention for the reader of the letter to understand this is the point where he means business. The rubber has now met the road in the coming passage, and you must pay attention. And then he goes on to re- or write the passage we just read from James' letter. Calling them to action. Specifically, in this case, action with the poor. But I want you to think about poor, not just in the sense of poverty, although very important, but expand it to this sense of all people who are, as Christ would say, poor in spirit. If our concept of biblical justice is to restore relationships and we meet people who have been put out in the case of James' letter because of their poverty or people who've been put out because they look or sound or act different And all we can say to them is, bless you, have a good day, and then be on our way. Are we fulfilling God's requirement to do justice? 
are we? I took a mission team to Latvia last August. Probably the least favorite of my trips my family let me go on. Not because I disliked it, but because of the geography and the geopolitical situation happening. If you don't know where Latvia is and you don't remember European history or you didn't take it in high school, um, you're lucky. Um, Since my European history teacher from high school liked my first sermon here, I want her to understand I really appreciate her class. (laughs) Man, social media, what a thing. And so I had to look up where Latvia was when I got to my last church. They said every other year you will lead a team to Latvia, part of your job. And every other off year, they're going to try to come here. And it's a long-standing, decades-long relationship with the, the United Methodist Church in Latvia. And so we led a team to Latvia. If you don't know where Latvia is, it is right beside Belarus and Russia and Lithuania. Probably the best place in the world to go right now. And so we went, and we were nervous the whole time, flew into Riga, and then drove, it seemed like forever, to the little, the little countryside town we were in. And there in Latvia, they had fixed us up with accommodations. They were in old Soviet dorms. So imagine a big cement building that's like eight stories tall in in a little country town. And imagine someone went into Microsoft Paint and just hit copy-paste a bunch of times everywhere. That's what the area was like. And they had been refurbished, though. They were really proud of this. They'd been remodeled And they remodeled that into the same style and the same color scheme of a a 90s Taco Bell. I kid you not. It was the same color scheme. If you remember a 90s Taco Bell, you know the teals and the yellows and the purples and the triangles and swiggly lines everywhere? It was like an episode of Saved by the Bell every single morning when you woke up in these dorms. Some people enjoy that. For me, it was slightly jarring. It's hard to have a deep, for me, emotional experience as you're drinking your local tea early in the morning before your mission team gets up and you're beside a bright teal fake leather bench and like some yellow triangles and squiggly purple lines on the other side of the wall. It just, it doesn't work for me. And, and so one morning, after trying a few times reading and trying to have some sort of quiet time, I was like, you know what, this isn't working. This room is too much for me. It might be that I'm literally on the other half of the world, and I'm behind the Iron Curtain, and I'm in, in Eastern Europe, and, and there's a war going on less than 100 miles away. Or, or maybe it is the teal furniture, but I'm going to go for a walk this morning. And I, I got up, and I walked down, went down all the flights of stairs. I think we're on like the fourth floor. Walked down the stairs, walked out the front door of the dormitory, and into the road. And all the buildings have bike racks and other kind of transportation. There are usually some bikes and stairs, but bikes and stuff chained up in front of every building. But our dorm had a plethora of small little bikes, so many small little children's bikes. And they were chained up and filled the whole bike rack, and then they were chained to each other, and and they just kept going. They filled the whole side in front of this dormitory. It was strange. And so I started walking around, and I walked from ours into a courtyard back here, into another one back here, and it was the same thing, you know, little kids' bikes everywhere. Um, Some of them in the courtyard had kids playing and speaking a language I couldn't understand, but that was pretty common over there, and I couldn't understand anyone over there. Um, And as they would speak and talk, 
I sat in, on a bench under a tree right beside our dorm, looking over one of these courtyards from the side and all the kids playing and the bikes everywhere and, and a few parents mulling around. I had a great time. It was quiet, it was peaceful, it was a lot colder than Texas in August, and I got up finally and I went in, and when our translator got there, who was one of the local pastors, I I asked her, I said, "Who, who are all these people, who are these kids, why are they living in these dorms, why are there 8 million bikes everywhere? And she said, Pastor, those... Those are the refugees from the Ukraine. That's why you only see women and children. And all these dorms above the fifth floor or whatever are only for refugees. And those are their bikes that you see chained up everywhere. Those are those, are those kids running around outside playing. See, if all we can say to people who've been pushed out of society is, Lord, bless you, have a good day, and move on, then James is right. We're not doing justice. Because justice in the most biblical sense, demands that we pull these people back into relationship with not only God, but ourselves. It was powerful to hear her tell me that in her broken English. Because Latvia is not a wealthy place. They don't really have a lot to give. And yet they were giving all they could to the people who were literally beside them in the continent. Displaced by war. See, our secular understanding of justice would tell us, well, we have to go over there and we have to do an equal amount of damage to the other side to make these people whole. But the concept of justice we find even nested in the hardest passages of the Old Testament is that we are called to do justice by bringing them back into relationship. Not just in worship but with ourselves, that they might know as people, even if they've lost their spouses and their country and their home, that they are still the beloved children of God. And they might not have their house in the Eastern European front anymore because it's been destroyed. And they might be cramming themselves into a little dormitory room that looks like a 90s Taco Bell, but they are still the beloved children of God. And that we can communicate that, not just with our words, and especially not just with our beliefs, but with our honest actions, and more importantly, with our very hearts. This is what divine justice is.
is this is what it means when Micah tries to offer God every other thing and says, can I give you more burnt offerings? Can I give you more oil? Can we have people offer up their firstborn son to you? And God says, no, do justice instead. This is what justice is. That the poor in spirit, the ones we often forget, as Christ says, might inherit the earth. And if we are to do justice, we will be the ones facilitating that inheritance. As people of Christ, that's what we're called to do. To go and do justice by bringing the people back into relationship with ourselves and our Christ. Because that, as we do justice, is the one thing we have to offer them. I invite you all, as we go out this week, we got two more weeks, I got two more points in the sermon series to cover, about half a dozen other silly stories from my past. I want to invite you this week to see the people you've missed. It's not going to be as easy as a bunch of refugees living a couple floors above you for two weeks, I promise. But see the people you have missed, whether they're the actual poor or the poor in spirit, that you might facilitate bringing them back into relationship. Because God has placed people like that in your life that you can help them inherit the earth just as Christ has commanded. Church, go this week. And by seeing those people and bringing them into relationship, go and do what the Lord has required of you. Go and do justice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We come this morning to the table and we celebrate communion. As we do, we're reminded of the work God has done in Christ to bring us into relationship with himself and with the others around us at the table. And we're reminded of that in the body that is broken for us and the blood that is spilled for us. And as we do, I invite you, as we come to communion, to remember that for yourselves. We all are here because someone beforehand had brought us to this table, whether it was a parent, a family member, a friend, or even a stranger. Someone else heard the call to do justice and brought you in from the outside that you might experience Christ yourself. And so we're reminded of that this morning as we come to the table. As we celebrate communion, I do have to remind you that we celebrate an open table. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to do anything special. You just have to simply come and seek to find the Christ who resides at this table.
With that, I also want to remind you, we do have a gluten-free option up here. So if you need that, simply let the servers know. But on the night in which Christ he offered himself up for us to bring us back into relationship and to mend the broken relationships of this world, to do the great work of God's justice among the people, he took a loaf of bread and blessing it, he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Eat often of this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. Blessing it and giving thanks, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink often of this in remembrance of me. If you join me in prayer. Gracious God, we come this morning and we offer ourselves once more to the holy work of doing justice in our community by bringing people back in to relationship with ourselves and relationship with you, to bringing people back to your table, that they might meet you, some of them for the first time. And God, we pray now that you would give us the strength and the courage, that you would give us the ability to do that this week, to see the people who are unseen, to hear the cry of the needy that we might work not for our own secular view of justice, but that we might work for your justice, one that seeks to bring all people to your table and place them in their seat beside you. God, we ask that you send your spirit now on us and on this bread. Let it be the body of Christ, even as we are the body of Christ. God, send your spirit on this cup. Let it be the blood of Christ that we are the blood of Christ poured out for the world around us. God, let us be a representation of your broken Christ to this world, even as this bread and juice represent them to us now. That we all might work in ministry to do the great and holy task of justice now and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.